step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Where were you on 9-11? As we mark 20 years since that tragic day, Q104.3 explores that question with 9-11 stories. A podcast presented by Barish and McGarry, lawyers for the 9-11 community. Each week, we present a 9-11 story from first responders, celebrities, and everyday people whose lives were forever altered that day. And now, here's your host, Shelley Sunstein. This is the 9-11 story of then 33-year-old Port Authority cop Will Jimeno, who with his sergeant, John McLaughlin, were the only two people rescued from under the collapse of the Twin Towers. Will was trapped for 13 hours. Sergeant McLaughlin was trapped for 22 hours. Their story was depicted in the 2006 Oliver Stone movie, World Trade Center, starring Nicolas Cage and Michael Pena. One of the rescuers says the real story was a hundred times worse than what you see in the movie. Uh, my name is Will Jimeno, retired Port Authority Police Detective with the Port Authority Police of New York, New Jersey. And uh, first of all, I want to thank uh, you, Shelley, for having me on here to talk about uh, something very close to everybody's heart. Almost 20 years ago, you know, we were attacked by cowards. That's what I call them, cowards, because they attacked people who were literally just going to work to make uh, their families' lives and their lives better. Uh, you know, I had been literally living the American dream. You know, uh, ever since a little boy, I just wanted to be a police officer. It took me six, six long years to become a cop here in New Jersey because uh, it's a very sought after position. I lived, I grew up in Hackensack, New Jersey, 12 miles uh, right from New York City. I saw the towers growing up. You know, New York's been part of my heart my whole life growing up. Uh, I came from Colombia, South America when I was two. My mom and dad brought me to this great country. I learned to love it. My mom always instilled in me, you know, to have love for your nation. Remember our heritage where we came from, Colombia, and take that heritage and try to make this country a better place. And that's something that I always just took to heart. Uh, went to Hackensack High School. After high school, uh, my dad wanted me to go to college to be a doctor. I said, Dad, I'm not that smart. I said, you know, but I wanted to give back to this nation. It had given so much to my family uh, through hard work on their part. So I joined the U.S. Navy. Uh, did four years on the USS Tripoli, got out. Uh, then I started my endeavor to become a police officer. During those six years, I met my beautiful wife, Allison. I had a four-year-old little, I had a little girl named Bianca. And then six weeks, uh, then I, I attained my dream on uh, January 19th of 2001, where I graduated with the 100th class of the Port Authority Police, the Centennial, at the World Trade Center, at the Marriott. It was just a great day. Uh, then I was assigned to the Port Authority uh, bus terminal in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, for those listening that don't know, it's the largest bus terminal in the world, the busiest uh, in the world. And, um, you know, I love my job. I really loved it. Interacting with both uh, residents from New York and New Jersey. You know, here I wanted to be a cop and now I'm a cop in two states. And uh, at the time, six weeks before the attacks, we bought our first home in Clifton, New Jersey. And I literally was living a dream. I had the job that I always wanted. I had a beautiful wife. I had a little girl who at the time was four years old. 
And uh, I literally just, I couldn't have asked for more. I really was living the American dream. And I was working day tours, so seven by three. Uh, so Tuesday, uh, September 11th was no different than any other day. Uh, I got up, uh, you know, got ready for work, walked into my uh, bedroom, gave my wife a kiss goodbye. I kissed her belly goodbye. She was now seven months pregnant with our second little girl on the way. And I walked into the next room and I gave uh, Bianca, who was four years old, like I said, a kiss goodbye. And I literally would skip down the stairs to this old car with a, a, a side view mirror that was busted. And, you know, as a rookie, you're not making a lot of money. So I had to duct tape it. You know, I just couldn't afford a new, new side view mirror. And I would take off from Clifton, New Jersey to the bus terminal. I in there early, went downstairs. And I tell everybody, I think every first responder knows what I'm talking about. But I say this to, as kids to, uh, as well is you never outgrow high school. I don't care how old you get. You'll, you just never outgrow high school. Went down to the locker room. and It was just like high school. You know, guys are busting chops, uh, making fun of each other, uh, getting dressed. And it was just a normal day. Got dressed, put on our uniforms, went upstairs, and we went to what's called roll call. A roll call is where you're assigned where you're going to be for the day. Um, I was assigned post 3-5, which is corner of 42nd 8th Avenue. So I had the front of the building over there. And we went out on post. Uh, it was weird because that morning we didn't stop for coffee or anything. We just went out to post. And I stood under the awning at the, the doorways there on 42nd 8th Avenue. And what happens in, at the bus terminals, we call it the rush. In the morning, you have a rush. And in the afternoon, you have the rush. So that means when everybody's coming in from uh, upstate New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, you know, they're just coming in from everywhere into midtown Manhattan. It's thousands of people coming through. I mean, it's like a, a stampede of, of human beings. And I, my job was, as everybody's job was that day, is to make sure everybody's safe. If people need information, of course, and stop any type of crime or lend first aid. So I'm standing in front of the doors, looking at the doors with 42nd Street behind me. And uh, excuse me, 42nd Street is to my right and 8th Avenue is right behind me. And I'm just standing there looking, normal day, people coming through the doors. And I remember looking to my right, to the corner of 42nd and 8th Avenue, just outside of the awning that's overhead, Sergeant Ross, Pat McNerney, and another officer, uh, uh, Sanchez, were standing on the corner. And I just happened to glance over, and I remember seeing Sergeant Ross looking up in the air and actually going like this. And I remember looking over the corner of 42nd and 8th Avenue, the intersection, and for anybody who's listening to this that's outside of New York, you know, that's a large intersection. And it just went black, like a shadow just covered the whole intersection. And I didn't really think anything of it. Um, and I just went back to looking at people and doing my job. Wasn't too long after that, that our radios crackled and uh, they asked every officer to come back to the police desk. So they would, they said our code 840, 840 back to the police desk, which means everybody come back to the police desk, which I don't even think that had happened before, especially during the rush where we're actually leaving the bus terminal unprotected. Uh, so we start, I start walking back. I walk down 8th Avenue and hook up with a fellow officer of mine, Dominic Pizzullo. Uh, Dominic graduated the academy with me, a real great guy. He was actually a teacher at uh, Lehman High School in the Bronx before he became a cop and uh, just a great, great individual. And we started walking back in the main lobby of the, of the bus terminal, heading back toward 9th Avenue where our police desk is. And as we welcome back, I remember Dominic saying, Will, you know, something bad must have happened for them to call us back. I said, yeah, I, I, who knows? And everything looked normal within the bus terminal. As we came around the police desk, you come around the police desk, you can look up at the police desk. It sits very high where our lieutenants or sergeants are. 
And I remember looking over, and one of the things that caught my eye was Sergeant McLaughlin. Sergeant McLaughlin was a 19-year veteran, someone high, highly respected. And one of the things I learned in the military was follow somebody into a bad situation that know what they're doing because your chances of it coming out increase. The percentage comes out better. And he was one of those people. I had been to uh, some gun calls with him, a couple other calls. And he was always very authoritative, knowledgeable, and someone I really respected. But I could see concern on his face. It really caught my eye. So I just kept walking back. And we walked down the hallway and made a left into what's called our reserve room, our break room. And there was a big TV set in there. And New York One was on. And as we look at New York One, all I see is Power One with a big black gaping hole and fire coming out of it. Now, one of the things that we were taught as Port Authority police officers was that you're going to do the same job as the NYPD and all the departments on the Jersey side. What sets us apart was our facilities. You know, we are transportation uh, oriented police department. So all of our facilities are target rich environments. They had hit us in 1993. The senior cops would say they're going to come back and they're going to come back to these towers. And everything that we learned in the academy was now rushing back into my mind. Like, this is real. These, these are terrorists. And as I was thinking at Sergeant Ross, who actually saw the plane, yelled, those are terrorists. Now, mind you, this is now back 2001. Even back then, the technology on airlines, uh, there was no way uh, a jetliner was just going to slam into a building. That, we just knew that wasn't the case. So at that point, I turned around and grabbed the payphone that was in our reserve room. And uh, I made it a point that anytime there was something bad happened at the bus terminals, because we had to deal with gangs and stuff like that. And if it made the news, I'd call my wife, Allison, just to let her know I was okay. And I got through that day, which is a miracle because the, the phone lines were really bad. But I got through to her. She was working in uh, Carlsbad, New Jersey. And I said, hey, listen, something bad happened. Not sure what's going on. She was asking me a lot of questions because we had a, a, a friend in the building, the director of aviation, Bill Dakota. And my mind right away went to Bill. You know, got to get Bill out of there. And she's asking me questions. And as I'm telling her, our inspector, Inspector Fields, walked into the break room, uh, to the reserve room, and said, listen, we've commandeered a bus on 9th Avenue. Uh, we're going to start calling your names off. We're going down to the World Trade Center to help our brothers and sisters because the World Trade Center is owned and operated uh, by the Port Authority. And we have a commander, so we have cops there that were responding right away. So at that point, I told Allison I got to go. Uh, she always says to me, it's weird, Will. That's the one time you never said I love you. You just kind of hung up. And because we always say I love you. Uh, but I, I just hung up the phone. And I remember a senior officer, Mike Robles, starts walking. Uh, Dominic starts walking ahead of me. And I started walking behind, uh, behind him. We didn't even wait for our names to be called. We were just going, you know. We know that our brothers and sisters needed help. People needed help. We walked down onto Ninth Avenue. We got onto this commandeered bus. And uh, we jump on there. And usually from, people know, from midtown Manhattan to downtown Manhattan, take a little time with traffic and everything like that. But that day, we were flying. Sergeant McLaughlin was in a police suburban uh, with Sergeant uh, Inspector Fields in the front and another Sergeant, Sergeant Feely in the back. And I remember just following the police suburban with the lights and sirens going on. And, you know, again, we're still on the bus. Everyone's kind of knowing what happens, but we really don't know what happens. So there's a lot of chit chat on the bus as to what happened. You know, some cops like, no, there's no way there's a terrorist. You know, others were saying, yeah, the terrorist. And Dominic Pizzullo was trying to get through to his family on the cell phone, but it wasn't working. So cell phone service was like out. Uh, and But we flew down there. We were flying down there. We cut across a uh, canal and we ended up going down uh, through the village. And it was two city blocks back when I remember the bus really going silent. Everybody stopped talking. We looked to our right. And two city blocks back, there was a gentleman in the middle of the street being worked on by an FDNY ambulance, a bus. 
uh, and there was blood coming out of his head. Something must have flown back two city blocks back and hit this person. And that's when we all kind of like, wow, this is serious, real serious, because we're getting close. And as we pulled up a block away from Vessi, um, uh, we just started getting off the bus. And I remember it didn't look real. It, it just looked like a bad, bad dream. You know, uh, we stepped off the bus and up to Vessi Street, um, it was just debris. It was just terrible. I look up and the first thing that caught my eye was the thousands of papers just floating everywhere, you know, and it was like a gray look to everything. Uh, that's when I kind of focused on the gaping hole. And I'm like, oh, my God, look at all the black smoke coming out. And then I look at the other tower and I figured, oh, look, the corner of that's on fire. In my mind, I thought the first plane had hit and there was a, a debris that hit the second tower. While we were en route down to the Trade Center, we didn't know that the second plane had hit the other building. So around what I was looking at was another gaping hole. All I thought was the one tower was on fire, the other tower took a deflection, but we could have concentrated on this one tower. And as, as we're sitting there, uh, excuse me, standing there, uh, one of our senior officers who was actually in the 1993 bombing yelled, uh, look, they're jumping, uh, Officer Ronnie Delmar. And I remember him pointing up and looking, and I could see actually tears coming out of his eyes. And as I looked up, I saw people jumping out of the black smoke. When I really concentrated, you could see people jumping, and people were jumping by themselves, holding hands, um, and they just kept jumping. And every time they jumped, it was like my, my heart was being torn out of my chest because to me it was like throwing a pebble into a lake, and there's that ripple effect that was somebody's mother, father, brother, sister, aunt, uncle. You could just keep going down the line. And I felt helpless. I mean, because that's why I became a cop. I became a cop to actually help people, to really make a positive impact on people's lives. And here we're standing, you know, um, and, and let's be honest. I mean, me as a kid, yeah, you always wanted to be a hero. You want to be macho. And you realize that, you know, if, if you were put in this situation, if you were Arnold Schwarzenegger, you were in a bad position. You know, if a piece of concrete hits you, you're just a human being. You realize you're tough, but you're just a human being. And this was so immense that I felt like I was standing in front of the ocean. You know, here we are with our shields, our uniforms, our gun belts. And I felt this big. Every time someone jumped, I just, all I could think about was we need to get up there, break a wall so somebody could see our uniforms and say, come on, let's go. But how do we do that? And I remember the last person I, I actually saw jump because they would jump and then disappear behind building five. And I remember the last person that jumped, it, it was like my eyes could zoom in on this person. He was a blonde gentleman wearing like a, a, a golf pinkish Latigre shirt, uh, you know, golf shirt and khaki pants. And when he jumped, he jumped with his arms straight out, like as if he's on a cross. And I just remember at that point being snapped out of it. Sergeant McLaughlin had parked on uh, the corner of Church Street and Vesey and came running through that, that abyss of just debris. And uh, he said, hey, I need volunteers. I need people that know how to use Scott air packs. So as Port Authority police officers, we're cross-trained not only in law enforcement, but firefighting because we're the first responders at all of our facilities. So we have to know uh, what, what to do as basically fighting fires, which I got to tell you was not my thing. I, I'd rather be around a bunch of bad guys than fire. I just felt very uncomfortable with fire. So I always tip my hat to, to firefighters. God bless them. But um, I just remember I don't know who said it first, Dominic, myself, we had just graduated the academy and another fellow officer, Antonio Rodriguez, who's another one of our classmates from the hundred. And all three of us said, well, we just graduated. We know how to use the Scott Air Pack. So um, 
Sergeant McLaughlin said, let's go. And the unique thing was Antonio Rodriguez had uh, just gotten back from Portugal. It was his first day back uh, on the job after two weeks vacation. And he was usually afternoons. That was his, he got switched to day tours, which he wanted to be. So in the afternoons, he could be with his family. He actually was his first day back on day tour. And this was happening. You know, it was incredible. So at this point, there's three of us. Uh, Sergeant Glocker said, let's go. We're going to go in. Follow me. So we started running. Now, like I said, from where we were standing to Vesey Street, uh, which I think was West Barkley, uh, there was nothing. I mean, there was just debris. There were pieces of concrete, uh, pieces of the plane. Um, and we, as we started running, I remember looking back and thinking to myself, man, I'm scared. I'm really, really, really scared. Uh, because as I look back, everybody was staging. There were cops, our cops. There were uh, FDNY guys standing by. And they, everybody was waiting for orders. I knew they were going to be doing something later. But at that point, I was just, like, scared. And I remember thinking to myself, I took an oath. And my oath was to serve and protect. So at that point, I just kind of focused on what we're doing. And I could look at Antonio's uh, face. I could see Dominic's face. And I could see that they were scared. Because as we're running, again, there's debris. Unfortunately, uh, you know, we saw human remains. It was just bad. So we got to the side of Building 5. And we actually ran past what they call the, uh, the stairwell of hope or the stairs where they, they kept the, uh, at the 9-11 memorial. We ran past those stairs, got to the side door. Sergeant McLaughlin then said, Jimeno, take our PR-24s, which we carried at the time, our, our hats, our memo books, run up to the Suburban, throw our equipment in there, come back in and meet us in an E-room. So E-rooms are set up throughout the World Trade Center to have all the equipment first responders needs. Helmets, Scott Air Packs, which is the breathing apparatuses, axes, anything you can think of to, to, to respond to any emergency are in these E-rooms. And they're strategically placed without, throughout the World Trade Center. So I said, okay. I ran up the block, came around onto Church Street, and I looked at the Suburban. The Suburban had taken a big piece of concrete on the front end and the roof, and it was crushed. That's when I started realizing, hey, dummy, there's stuff falling from the sky. And I kind of threw the equipment in. And as I looked down church, I could see people just being herded out uh, onto the street. Now, again, I didn't know that that building had been hit. So I just thought it was really odd that that building, so many people were running out. So I ran back along the building five and went into the, into the lobby. And that's where I met up with the team. At this point, Dominic, Antonio, Sergeant Block, and they were putting on their Scott air packs, putting on their helmets, their bunker gear. Uh, by the time me and Dominic got in there, we were bigger guys. They didn't have bunker coats. Antonio had a bunker coat, a helmet, and a Scott air pack. At that point, uh, Dominic and myself just put our helmets on, put our Scott, Scott air packs on. We checked each other. And one thing we promised each other right then and there, I said, listen, no matter what happens, we do not separate. We stay as a team. So we started going into the mall level. And for those people that don't know what the World Trade Center was back then, it was two buildings. And the way you'd get to each tower was through a mall level. That mall level had stores, restaurants, also uh, escalators that lead down to the subway into the path trains. So we entered this mall level. And as we went in, Sergeant McLaughlin said, let's go. We're going down one more level to the police desk. Now, I had been to the World Trade Center twice before while working on a couple of protests. I didn't really know the buildings. Sergeant McLaughlin knew the buildings like the back of his hand because he had helped set up the security after the 1993 bombing, uh, you know, where to put diff different things and looking at different angles to protect the building. So he said, we're going down 
to the police that. So I remember getting on an elevator. And I remember when we got on the elevator, I'm thinking to myself, I don't think we're supposed to be in an elevator if there's a fire condition. But I trusted Sergeant Block. When we went downstairs, came out, went into the police desk. And the funny thing is, when we walked into the police desk, uh, the French crew that you've seen the film of, they're actually at the police desk with us. Uh, they actually filmed Sergeant McLaughlin in there. You can see Sergeant McLaughlin being filmed. Uh, they didn't film us, but when we walked in, I remember there was a piece of the plane sitting in the police desk our detectives brought in. And, you know, as a human being, you walk in and it just doesn't register. It seems like a, a nightmare. Like, why is there a piece, even though I know a plane has hit the building, why is there a piece of this plane in this police desk? You know, it's just your mind's not trying, it's trying to absorb this this massive catastrophe that's happened. Um, so at that point, Sergeant McLaughlin said, hey, guys, grab a male canvas cart, start putting more Scott air packs, more axes, more lights in, uh, so we have more equipment. So at that point, we started putting more equipment in there, and uh, we left. We left there, went into the elevator, went back up, and we came out to the mall level. As we came out to the mall level, we made a right, and we were going around the... Uh, the area where you would go down to the path trains and the subway and we're coming around toward the lobby where you would make a right and go to tower one or go straight uh, to tower two. And the one thing I want to tell everybody that I saw that day was love. I, I, I cannot express this enough. I saw total strangers helping each other. There was a steady line coming from building uh, from tower one of people helping each other. There were people who were hurt. There were people who had passed um, and there were people screaming. But yet there's a steady flow of people in a line helping each other. I remember seeing a black gentleman and a white gentleman carrying a, a blonde woman who had a severe cut on her leg. And they're in this single file line helping each other. You know, we passed an FBI agent who was directing people out. Um, and I thought to myself, if these civilians can be this brave, us in uniform, we need to be three notches above them. Because they really, to me, exemplified heroism and love for your fellow human being. And so we continued on. And as we hit the area where we could have went straight to Tower 1 or made the left to go to Tower 2, we had bumped into another crew of Port Authority police officers. They were dressed like us with the same gear. They also had a male canvas cart. And there was about five of them. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The guy pushing their is also a classmate of ours that graduated with the 100th class. His name was Stuart Warren. And Stuart was a, a four-year veteran of the NYPD. He was a detective who came over. Just a great, great guy. And I remember Sergeant Blockman talking to their sergeant. I can't remember the other officer's name because I wish I could. Um, but I talked to Stuart. And, you know, Stuart ha actually had his first little girl while we were in the academy. And we kind of just small talk. And their Sergeant Blockman said, let's go. Their sergeant said, let's go. And I remember... Just saying to Stewie, be, be safe, bro. And we, we punched hands and they left. Uh, Stuart lost his life that day as well as the other Port Authority officers. Um, they never found their bodies. Uh, that, that was tough because, uh, you know, I knew him, you know, and later I would be able to, I was blessed to be able to 
tell his wife I was the last person to see him alive. She didn't know that till we were together at an event. And that meant a lot because he wasn't scared. He was doing his job just like everybody that day. You know, we just wanted to get people home. So we continued on toward Tower 2. As we got in front of Tower 2, again, for those that don't know, there were these huge revolving doors that you would go through to get into the lobby of the uh, towers. So I, we stopped there, and there was a Ben & Jerry uh, ice cream store there. So we stopped there. Sergeant Glocka said, Jimeno, you stay with the cart. The rest of you guys come downstairs. We're going down to another E-room. They were going downstairs to see another one of our Port Authority officers, Jimmy Lynch. Uh, so they went downstairs, and I'm standing there. And I'm looking into the lobby of, of, of the tower. And, you know, and I could see the West Side Highway on the other side. Uh, and I remember just being, again, that's, that feeling of being scared came over me. You know, here I am, 33 years old. I've been in the military. Uh, had seen some action of those nine months uh, at the bus terminal, but nothing could prepare anybody for what I was seeing. You know, I saw people who had passed. I saw people that were running, screaming. I could hear gunshots because our officers were on the other side, literally shooting out windows so more people can get out. And as I'm standing there, I hear somebody walk up to me and said, hey, how you doing? I look over to my left from the command center of two, and Bruce Reynolds started walking over me. Bruce Reynolds was a, uh, a veteran police officer with the Port Authority Police. Uh, he was a black gentleman, bald. And the only reason I knew him, because I had not met him, was because growing up in Hackensack, New Jersey, I get the Bergen record. And he was assigned to the George Washington Bridge. And unfortunately, at the George Washington Bridge, we have a lot of people who take their lives by jumping off the bridge. So I would every, every once in a while, I would see articles on the Port Authority police officers who stopped somebody from jumping. And I saw his picture. And one of the things about Bruce was he was so well liked by people, even the people he he would arrest liked him because he always made it a point to even buy the people he arrested lunch, because in his mind, it was like, you know what? You never know. A little bit of kindness might change somebody's life. You know, he grew up in the Bronx. Uh, so he was a tough guy. But he walked up to me and he was sweating. He had a Scott air pack on. He said, you know, Reynolds, GWB, George Washington Bridge. I said, Jimeno, BT, bus terminal. And he just said, you know what, kid, today's going to be a long day. We'll get a lot of people home. And I needed that. You know, I needed that from a senior officer. Um, and the unique thing about uh, Bruce was that uh, I think he wanted to be an Irish guy. He married an Irish woman. Uh, he loved Ireland. Uh, at the time, he was the only black officer that would walk down the St. Pat uh, Patrick's Day Parade in color his black bald head green. You know, he was a great character. People loved him. You know, and I learned more about him afterwards. That's why I'm sharing this. Uh, with you guys, because it's important to, to know a little bit about these people we lost. And at that point, you know, he just said that to me and Sergeant Blocker and the team started coming back up and he started walking away and he shouldn't be been in the buildings because he had like a lung condition. But that's the kind of service uh, we have here in America for police officers, first responders that put their lives on the line to help people. And that's what Bruce was doing. And he walked away. And the last I saw him, he was walking toward the command center of um, of the tower there and i could see a bunch of firefighters i could see him um we lost him and i believe all those firefighters they found them i think the following february uh had told the detectives when they asked me who i saw last and you know, i told them i saw Stewart. i saw told them i saw bruce they actually found bruce where i told them i saw him last uh but at that point we loaded up the cart i had been pushing the cart from the police desk to this point and i started pushing again that's when antonio rodriguez said to me uh, Will, let me push, because if you're tired to, for wherever, wherever we're going to go, 
you're not going to be any use to, to us. So I thought, hey, that's teamwork, right? No big deal. All right. I had been sweating. The adrenaline's going. You know, again, we looked like uh, firefighters with guns on ourselves. And we were carrying a lot of equipment. So at that point, Antonio gets behind the car. Now we're leaving Tower 2. And we're starting to walk this long hallway and make a left then to go to Tower 1. As we start going down this hallway, Antonio's behind this mail cart. Uh, and at that point, we actually met up with another officer, Christopher Amoroso. Christopher Amoroso was assigned to the bus terminal, but then was transferred only weeks prior to the World Trade Center. And he was one of my OJT officers. He actually just, just loved the job. This guy loved the job. He had a little girl at home, uh, you know, um, and uh, Chris just was the kind of guy you would go through a door with. That's the saying we have, right? You trust somebody so much with your life that no matter what's on the other side of the door, this guy, you'll go through a door with him. And that's the kind of person he was. He actually had saved about four people before coming back into the World Trade Center and hooking up with us. And there's a famous picture of Christopher Amoroso uh, of him saving a Hispanic woman with another gentleman. Um, the Daily News photographer took a picture. Uh, if you look it up, it's at the memorial. He's the Port Authority officer that has the Nike gloves on and he's helping a lady. Uh, and that was Chris. And when we, we hooked up with him, we saw that he was injured. He had taken a hit over his left eye, excuse me, his left eye. And we're like, Chris, are you okay? He's like, don't worry about me. We got to get people out of here. And that's the kind of tough kind of kid he was, you know? And uh, at that point, uh, we became a team of five. So Antonio starts pushing this cart. Christopher is to Antonio's left. Sergeant McLaughlin is at the 11 o'clock in front of the cart. I'm in front of the cart directly at noon. And Dominic Pizzullo is at the one o'clock of this cart. And we're walking up this hallway. We're halfway up this hallway. And I remember uh, bumping into some firefighters in the EMT. And Sergeant McLaughlin said, be careful. Uh, you know, it was down in the B1 level. And things don't look good down there. So, you know, he, he, he think that the, the stabilization of the building was in question. You know, he could see things were kind of crackling down there, but nobody thought that the towers were coming down. Even today, Sergeant Blocken always says to me, you know, well, if I thought those buildings were coming down, I would have never taken you guys in there. Nobody thought the buildings were coming down. And at that point, his radio crackled, uh, crackled after he talked to his firefighters and the EMT. And it was our inspector asking us where our location was. So, Sergeant McLaughlin started to say what the location was. And that's when I heard a humongous boom. So I literally turned around from where we were coming from, looking through the revolving doors into the lobby. Uh, and I saw a huge, huge fireball. I mean, the size of my house. And I'm standing there looking up, holding my helmet. It looked like out of a movie, an earthquake movie. Everything is shaking. I'm just standing there. I don't know what to do. And remember what I said? Follow somebody in that knows what they're doing because your chances of coming out are much higher. Well, I followed the right person in. Sergeant McLaughlin says, run, run toward the elevator. Now, it's a miracle. We happen to stop. Directly to our right was a hallway that led to an elevator. So I just followed Dominic. Dominic started running. I started running. I could see Sergeant McLaughlin behind me. And what Sergeant McLaughlin saw, which I didn't see, was as the building's coming down, there's a wall of debris coming toward us. And in his mind, in his experience, what he thought was the Middle East. What do they do in the Middle East? They'll blow something up, let the first responders come in and blow something up again to kill more people. So in his mind, he's thinking car bomb. We start running. I remember getting into that hallway following Dominic. And that's the first time I said, Will, what did you get yourself into? Because I remember 
now a real big fear came over me, super big. And I could see the lights flickering in this hallway and I saw brownstone. And it's funny how your mind worked because it seemed like everything was in slow-mo, but I knew it was happening fast. I didn't understand what that brown stuff was. What it was, was the buildings coming down. And for a split second, I thought I saw light in front of me. And I thinking to myself, save yourself, run toward that light. And then I remembered, no, we promised each other we wouldn't leave each other. So I saw Dominic starting to turn to the left. I followed, and that's when something big picked me up, slammed me down, and put me on my back. And all I remember is hearing people yell. We're yelling. Uh, I'm on my back. Things are hitting us. And the first thing you do as a police officer when you're in trouble is you go for your radio. So my radio was on my left lapel. I went for my radio. I'm yelling 813, which is our code for like, send everybody. I mean, you're just saying, you know, everybody come. So I'm like 813, 813, officers down. You know, this is uh, Officer Jimeno, please help, help. And I'm trying to yell. And at the same time, I don't know where I'm at. You know, I have no idea where I'm at in these buildings. And something hits my hand. I lose my radio. At that point, I started holding on my helmet. Something big hit my helmet and literally ripped it off my head. I had a chin strap on. It just came flying off. And at that point, I'm just holding on and things are bombarding. And it's weird because it felt like it was lasting forever. And then everything just went quiet. And I couldn't move. I, saw, I found myself in a 45 degree angle, leaning back like on a lazy bo uh, boy chair. Um, and when I started to start see things, I could see this hole about, about 30 feet. And it started like just real grainy gray. And lights started coming in. Uh, what we didn't know, we were right uh, underneath the plaza. And the lights started coming in. And all I could see was concrete around me, all around me. It was about two to three feet to my right of, of concrete, but very, very tight. Uh, and I saw what, what, we, what I know today is literally a wall fell on me and actually started crushing. But underneath that wall was Dominic in a push-up position down. And... But right beyond my feet, all I could see was concrete. And out of nowhere, I heard sound off. It was Sergeant McLaughlin. He was about, I'd say, 10 feet on the other side of this concrete wall. Uh, and he was actually stuck at this point on the first initial collapse. He's actually in a fetal position, stuck. Uh, and he actually says, what's everybody's condition? I said, I, I got a lot of pain on my left side. I can't move. Dominic said, I think I can shimmy out of here. I'm okay. He was actually okay. And he was in a push-up position down to my left side with his Scott Air Pack on. Um, so at that point, Sergeant McLaughlin said, okay, uh, if you can get out, get Jimeno out, and then you two get me out. So it took a little bit of time, but uh, Dominic was able to shimmy out of his Scott Air Pack, get his helmet off, and he literally had to crawl over my face. And he got into this little void. He could barely, barely stand up. So he was kind of crouching. And, you know, again, there's a hole above us about 30 feet. And at that point, um, Dominic said, Sarge, I think I can go up and get help. And Sergeant Block said, no, you have to get Jimeno out. You get Jimeno out and then you two get me out. And, you know, he's thinking tactically. You don't leave any man behind. You have to get us out. And he actually made a point like, listen, it was probably a car bomb. If you leave us, you'll never find this hole again. You know, so you have to get us out. And I got to tell you, we had a serious conversation down there. I mean, because put yourself in Dominic's position. There's a hole where you can go out and get help or to use, follow your, your, your leader's order, orders and stay and do what he says. And remember, we're all family men. I mean, Sergeant Glock has four children at home. I had a little girl at home and one on the way. Dominic had two children at home. You know, 
um, at that point, we realized that we lost uh, Antonio and Chris in the initial collapse. You know, Chris had a little girl at home. Antonio had two children at home. Uh, and that was that was hard uh, losing them because I, I must have yelled their names for like two minutes. So and t- uh, Dominic said, Willie, you know, they're in a better place. And, you know, it was very, very difficult to to accept the fact that two of our friends, two of our fellow cops, two Americans were gone. Uh, but Dominic at that point had to make a tough decision. And, you know, we talked about it and he said, Willie, you know, I got two girls at home. I said, hey, man, I got one girl at home and one on the way. And we kind of talked about it. And he said, you know, Will, I'm, I'm going to stay and get you out. He did what I would have done in my, in my honest opinion. And he did what any cop would have done. And it's normal. And why I'm saying this is because we are human beings. So I want people to understand that if you're ever in a position, you, it's okay to feel certain ways. You're a human being. Uh, but we also, as police officers, firefighters, first responders, we do take an oath and we're always there for our brothers and sisters. And that's what he did that day. He kept up his oath. He actually turned around. He started trying to dig me out. Uh, there was a piece of rebar that was wrapped around uh, in, a, in a, like a, a, a U-shape. And on the end of it, it had a piece of concrete that was laying on my right side. And he would actually take this piece of concrete uh, and rebar and move it, but it would slam back. And this happened several times, and believe it or not, I mean, I was like, yo, bro, you're fucking kicking my ass. And we laughed down there. Believe it or not, we actually laughed. In the middle of of hell, we laughed. And we needed that. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit. He kept trying to dig me out. And when he kind of sat back down and he said, Willie, I I can't get you out, man. And I remember that really scared me really, really bad. Because I'm like, wait a second, if Dom can't get me out, we're in trouble here. And that's when we heard another boom. And that was the uh, the other building coming down. At that point, I just remember Dominic kind of crouching up, standing up, and everything was shaking. Things are coming down really hard. Um, So I've always done this with my family. I say, I love you. That's sign language for I love you. Uh, All I could do was, because I figured at that point we're dead, was take both my hands, cover them over my chest. I love you. Because I figured if I died, and they found me, and they found me like this. They would be able to tell my wife we found him like this. She would know what I meant in my mind. I, that's 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 what my thinking was. And I covered myself, and I just braced, and I looked over, and I could see Dominic. Just something hit him and sat him down like a ragdoll. He was yelling. Now at this point, Sergeant McLaughlin is yelling because now he's actually being crushed. He's crushed so much that actually his weapon is being pushed into his body, the leather. And I could hear him yelling. Dominic is yelling, I'm yelling. And again, everything happens to seem like it was lasting forever. And then just it stopped. The second building had fallen on us. What we didn't know was we're in the epicenter. We actually had both towers actually land on us. And um, it's a miracle that we were still, uh, that two of us were still alive because at that point I looked over and unfortunately Dominic was coughing up a lot of blood and it, you know, we were we were just all gray. And you could see this kind of red stuff coming out of him. And he said, Willie, I'm dying. And I said, Dominic, hold on. I just that's all I could say was hold on. I wasn't even thinking about my pain. And I could hear Sergeant Glocken yelling really loud. And Dominic said, Willie, I'm, I'm dying. And, uh, you know, don't ever forget I died trying to save you guys. I said, Dominic, I would never let anybody forget this. And I just kept telling him, please hold on, please hold on. And in the middle of him literally losing his life, it, his life is leaving him. He says to Sergeant McLaughlin, Sarge, can I get a 3-8, which is a break and, and, uh, for Port Authority officers. And uh, Sergeant McLaughlin stopped his yell and said, yeah, you can have a 3-8. I don't know what was going through his mind that he actually said, can I get a break? 
in his last moments, he pulled out his weapon and he pointed up into that hole that I told you about where the light was coming in. It was still coming in. Uh, and he fired one round in a last ditch effort to let people know we were down there. His team was down there. And I remember after he fired the weapon, he just slumped over and he was gone. And that was, that was very difficult for me. I mean, I'm actually only like two feet from him and, you know, I'm yelling, Sarge, Dom's going, Dom's going. And Sergeant McLaughlin, being such a professional, said, you need to focus, refocus, refocus, and start thinking about how you can get out of here. And even though through his pain, he was always a great leader. And at that point, uh, started really our fight for our lives. Uh, you know, I kept yelling, PAPD officers down. I got a big voice, as you can hear. I, you know, I'm pretty loud. Uh, and I'm yelling. I'm yelling at the top of my lungs, but to nothing, because we were literally near the globe, near the sphere. We were in the epicenter. So it's like we were just alone. You know, there was nobody around us. Nobody could hear us. Nobody was coming in at that point because it's too dangerous. And uh, the fight for our lives happened. And I said, Sarge, you know, what's going to happen to us? And, you know, this is a little bit time past. I'm yelling. He said, Jimeno, he said, Basically, what's happening to us is we're being crushed. We're going to, we're suffering from, from, from compartment syndrome. If they don't get to us by the morning, we're probably going to die. And it was hard to hear that. But at the same time, I, I really appreciate it because he's being straightforward with me. So we knew what the situation was. And I said, Sarge, you know, what do we do next in the book? Right. You always talk about what do I do next for the book? He goes, there is no book for this. There's no, no training, no nothing that could have ever prepared us for this. We literally have to fight for our lives. And that's what we started to do. Um, and as time went on, you know, next thing you know, is these fireballs start falling in, you know, and I could smell what's jet fuel. I knew it was jet fuel being in the military. I was on a ship. We carried helicopters. I know the smell of jet fuel and these balls, the fire started coming. And like I said before, I don't like fire and here they're coming on and they're starting to burn my, 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 uh, my right arm. And I knew once they caught my uniform, I'm probably going to die you know, alive, being uh, burned alive. And that was very difficult. So I kept yelling, Sarge, these fireballs are coming in. And all he could do was be supportive and said, try to put them out somehow. And I'm like, how the fuck do I put these things out, you know? And I just kept kind of throwing like debris at them. Somehow, some way they would burn me a little bit and then put themselves out. And this went on for a while. So if that wasn't bad enough, then I hear pow, 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 pow. And I look above me and I see sparks. Somehow, some way, Dominic's gun was going off. I don't know if it was from the heat. I don't know what it was, but there was 15 rounds left, and they're firing over my head. And I could see, I could look over, and I could see the weapon kind of up in a position. It's shooting. So all I could do was take my hand and put it over my face, hoping that if a bullet hit my hand, it would stop it. But I knew better. It would just go right through and kill me. And somehow, some way, the gun unloads, and I'm still alive. I cannot express to you how hysterical I was at that point. You know, because I was just like nothing left to me. OK, I just went through losing my uh, three of my friends, uh, being crushed, being burnt. And now a gun went. Holy shit. What else can someone take? You know, so again, Sergeant McLaughlin being the leader just said, keep focused, keep focused. You know, he understood what was going on. And then for the next several hours, it's something that I wouldn't wish upon anybody. The, the, the pain, the nightmare. Uh, it just kept going on and on as the evening went on. At one point, I could hear uh, gunshots going off above me, which I know it's, uh, I think it was Building 7, uh, housed uh, the federal building where there's ammunition. 
I thought we were at war. I thought our cops were in a firefight with, with terrorists because we didn't know anything. Our radios weren't working. I had lost my radio. Sergeant McLaughlin's radio was staticky, but he wasn't getting any reception. And as the night went on, we talked to each other. We actually got to know each other because I always knew him as Sergeant McLaughlin. He knew me as Jimeno. Uh, we started talking about our families. You know, he told me his name was John. I told him my name was Will. He told me he had four little girl, uh, four kids at home. Uh, I told him I had two little girls, uh, one and one on the way. Uh, we got to know each other. We said a lot of prayers together. We kept each other going because when one started fading away, the other one would yell. Um, you know, and this continued all night long. Uh, and as it was getting darker, I just wanted to give up. I really just wanted to die. And uh, this is the, the point I tell people, especially people who are in a dark place in their life. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, this is the most important part for me in the story of what happened on 9-11. Uh, because I want to share with this with anybody who is in, in a dark place. And, uh, you know, going back to what you said in the beginning, there's thousands of 9-11 stories, not like mine. But, yeah, they are like mine. I tell everybody, we all have our own World Trade Centers. All right. Your story is important to you as is important as to mine. So I tell people because they come up to me all the time and say, well, I can't imagine 220 stories following you. Yeah, but when, when you lost a loved one, when you found out you got cancer, when you were in a car accident, you know, whatever the situation is, it's like the World Trade Center coming down. And it's what you have to do with yourself to overcome it. And at that point, I was at a point where I just wanted to die. And I, I said a prayer to God. I'm, I'm Catholic. I don't preach religion, you know, but I, I, I told God, I said, God, thank you for 33 great years. Thank you for my beautiful wife, Allison. Thank you for four great years with my little girl, Bianca. Um, my parents were bringing me this great country and my, my baby sister, Karen. Um, and you, my in-laws. And I said, thank you for allowing me to be an American, be a cop and doing the right thing today. And if I die, which I know I was going to, I'm okay with it. But I'm going to ask you for two things, God. One is to somehow, some way, let me see my little girl be born. That's all I wanted, you know, and be, let my mother and my mother-in-law be there for, for her at her birth, because I knew that Allison just wasn't going to have me. And the second thing, and, and you can laugh at it. I said, God, when I get to heaven, because I felt everybody that day was going to heaven because these cowards attacked innocent human beings, whether you're a first responder or a civilian, we were all going to go to heaven, was just give me a glass of water. I was so thirsty. We were caked in concrete. That's the one thing that was eating me up, the thirst. And I closed my eyes and I was going to die. I was going to give up. And uh, at that point, you can call it a vision, a dream, whatever you want to call it. As I closed my eyes to literally give up, I had a vision. And a person's walking toward me with a glowing white robe, no face, brown hair. Over his uh, left shoulder was a pond in the back with beautiful trees, just very tranquil. Over his right shoulder was an endless sea of tall grass. And I knew who it was in my heart. To me, it was Jesus. And as he's walking toward me, what's he got in his hand? A bottle of water. I don't know if it was, you know, Poland Spring or what it was, but I snapped out of that vision, that dream, whatever you want to call it, hallucination, with a a fire in my belly. 
Because at that point, I realized that if I had died, if I had given up, I would have given up on my family, first and foremost. I would have given up on my sergeant because I'm close to the hole. Nobody could hear him. And if I died, they would never find him. I would have given up on my country. But most of all, I would have given up on myself. So what I'm trying to convey to anybody, if you're going through substance abuse, whether you're going through a bad relationship, whether you're a kid who's just been adopted and feels lost, whatever that darkness you're dealing with, don't give up on yourself. Because at the moment you give up on yourself, you're really letting yourself down and so many people around you. And trust me, you're loved and you're not alone. You're not alone. In whatever darkness you are in, you are not alone. And at that point, I said, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die giving it everything I have. Because that way, at least I can go in peace knowing that I didn't give up. I gave everything I had. And I, I, I owe that to myself. I owe it to my family, to my sergeant, to my country. And I wasn't going to let these terrorists win. Because if I've given up, they win. And that's meaning the darkness wins. And I'm not going to allow the darkness to, to win. So at that point, I said to Sergeant McLaughlin, I said, Sarge, we're going to get out of this fucking hellhole somehow, some way, or we're going to die trying. And I remember him saying, yeah, we're going to keep trying. And we kept trying for hours and hours on end. I mean, it was so horrendous down there. I can't even, I can't explain it to you. You know, they made a film about us called World Trade Center by Oliver Stone. And Scott Strauss, who led my operation from NYPD Truck One, uh, we, we actually brought the real people that saved us to talk to Oliver because I said, I can't tell you from their point of view. I can tell you what happened to me. And that's what made the, the movie great was bringing in the actual rescue workers. And Scott was asked by Oliver Stone, how does this look? Does this look bad? He goes, it was way worse. And Oliver's like, well, I can't make a movie if I make it any worse. And, you know, Scott was just telling me, I don't know how to tell you. It was a hundred times worse than what you see in the film. It was that bad. It was that tighter. It was that nastier. There, there was fires. It was really, really bad. But at that point, you know, uh, it was around eight o'clock that evening when I hear in the distance, United States Marine Corps, can anybody hear us? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm hallucinating again. I'm hearing things. And I start yelling, PAPD, officers down. And I can hear the voices getting closer and closer and closer. And it was two Marine Reservists, uh, Jason Thomas and David Carnes, and they were with a civilian. These men went through the lines that they weren't letting anybody in and into the epicenter and they found us. And I remember they came over my uh, left side, which I did not know there was a small hole up there and they were shining a light down. And I said, Hey, Port Authority police, officer Jimeno. Uh, and we got uh, Sergeant Block and we're hurt really bad. We've lost teammates. And I said, uh, when they said Marines being Navy, uh, I was in, uh, my ship was amphibious. We carried Marines. I said, Hey, U.S. Navy, USS Tripoli, we carried you guys. And they said, we're not going to leave you, buddy. We're Marines. And I'm thinking at myself, oh, my God, the Marines are here. I didn't know there were Marine Reservists at the time. All I know, they were Marines. I'm thinking if the Marines are here, we're at war. And that really hurt because I'm thinking to myself, we're at war on our, on our soil, American soil. So they were trying to see me, and they couldn't see me because I'm waving my left hand, which I could wave because I was completely buried on one side. And my hand, they couldn't see because it looked like concrete. And that was so frustrating because this went on for like five minutes. We can't see you. And I'm like, what the fuck? You can't see me. I'm, the light's right on my hand. So remember, I said I was thirsty. I had no saliva. Somehow, some way, I mustered enough saliva to put a little 
uh, to get rid of the uh, concrete uh, dust on my left hand, and I waved. And they said, we got you. And I cannot express to you the overwhelming feeling of they found us. You know, at that point, hold on. They sent the civilian down the pile. They bumped into uh, uh, NYPD ES truck one. And that's when Scott Strauss, Patty McGee, and the rest of the team came up. Uh, the Marines stayed above me, uh, shining a light down. That's when I, what I remember was them getting to me. And it was so tight, they can't come snake their way down. And there was a, a, a civilian, Chuck Sharika, who came off the street, who was a former paramedic, and said, I know how to administer medical aid. So here you have Scott Strauss, who's bald, Chuck Sharika, who's bald, and, and uh, Patty McGee was behind them. They snaked their way down. And all I could see were two bald heads. That's how tight the situation was. When they got down there, all I could see was those bald heads. And I remember it was them two. Uh, Chuck was starting to work on me. Literally, I think he was using duct tape to put an IV in. And Patty McGee started putting debris away. Now, when they got there, they saw Dominic. And I didn't know this because I was just so out of it. Uh, they covered up Dominic. Uh, Patty McGee put his jacket on top of him. And they started working on me. The first time they got to me, I almost felt like giving myself up to them because I started hyperventilating because I just was like so exhausted. I mean, I could barely move. You know, during the course of the night, I tried to use my handcuffs to, to hit the concrete, but we had swollen up like the Michelin man. At one point when I used the handcuffs, I hit it a couple of times, put it down to rest, and I couldn't find it. You know, later I was able to take my weapon out uh, and, and, and use that as a hammer. And when I put that down, I couldn't find it. When they got there, all my equipment was right there on my waist side, but I couldn't feel it. That's how swollen we were. And they grabbed the equipment, grabbed, get that rid of the way. And I remember the first time Scott got to me, I was hyperventilated and Scott said, listen, bro, you got to hold on. You got to still focus. And I realized that like, you got to keep control of your body. You can't give yourself up to them. I was hyperventilating to the point I was going to give myself a heart attack. He was able to calm me down, gave me a bag to breathe. Um, and then he said, all right, well, we're going to start trying to get you out. And I remember the first time he touched me, it was so painful. I yelled, I mean, Scott will tell you, I yelled like a yell he's never heard before. And at that point he stopped and I kind of saw him like stop. And I said to myself, Will, you're going to have to eat this pain because every time you yell like that, he's stopping and I have to let him work. I cannot tell you the immense pain I was in every time he touched me, but they started going to work. And I kept saying to them, listen, can you guys get to my partner? And I don't know why I said partner, not my sergeant. I said, can you get to my partner first? I'm younger in my mind. I know he's been yelling all night long because, like I said, he is now being crushed in the fetal position the whole time. I was crushed on my whole left side. And I'm thinking I'm younger. I can hold on longer. I said, can you get to my partner? And they're like, no, we got to get you out first. And then we'll get your partner. They thought my partner was Dominic and that I didn't know he had passed. So they continued to work on me and I don't know we're we're into it a little bit and a voice from the back says, how's it going over there? Sergeant McLaughlin, who was in so much pain, didn't say a word while they were working on me. He scared the bejesus out of, uh, out of them. And they're like, who's that? I said, that's my partner. And they're like, what do you mean your partner? They're thinking it's Dominic. I said, no, it's my sergeant. He's buried further back. They were just out of their mind. So right away, Thank goodness that Sergeant McLaughlin was one of our former ESU operators. He knew 
Pat McGee, Patty McGee, and Scott Strauss because they've cross-trained at the World Trade Center, the NYPD ESU and the Port Authority ESU. So Patty McGee says, what, you know, Sergeant McLaughlin, John McLaughlin? And John's like, yeah. He goes, it's Patty McGee. And Patty's Irish and, and uh, McLaughlin's part Irish. So he says, hey, uh, what's it called? Green Eyes. And, uh, oh, Irish Eyes, I'm sorry. He says, hey, Irish Eyes, how are you doing? He goes, I'm in a lot of pain. You know, when do you guys think you can get to me? He's like, we're working on Will real quick uh, and try to get him out to get to you. And that was a great feeling for me because not only are my fellow brothers in blue there, but they actually know each other, you know? So that gave you a more uplifting feeling because at that moment, at that moment, it was so important to find optimistic things, even though they were there, I was still looking for something to uplift me. And while they're working on me, I'm thinking to myself, am I even going to make it out of here? Like, even if they get me out, am I going to survive these injuries? I have no idea. They actually had a doctor standing above us ready to amputate our legs. And my whole rescue took three hours. I want to say it was well into it when I just, they couldn't get my left leg loose. And I just said to Scott, I said, Hey, just, just cut my left leg off. I'm, I can see this hole 30 feet up for me. Get me out. I can live without a leg so you can get to my sergeant. And Scott said, no, we're going to get you out whole. And that was tough because there was an encroaching fire. They were ordered several times to actually leave us because they were so concerned with this fire that they would kill more of them. And these guys, you know, I, <laughs> I don't even want to start crying, but, you know, these guys said, no, if we're going to stay with these guys and, and, and if they die, we die with them. They weren't leaving us, you know. Uh, it got to the point they were able to get a, a machine in, uh, a small jaws of life, because they needed to lift this concrete off me. The, you know, they couldn't get, they had me mostly out, but as Scott describes it, I was wrapped in a cocoon of concrete and this wall was on. So he had to get this uh, tool in to start working. And I remember he told everybody, listen, everybody needs to be quiet. And he had asked Patty McGee and Chuck Chirica to get out of the hole. He goes, listen, if everything comes down on us, when I break this concrete, there's no use of all of us dying. And again, Chuck Chirica and Patty McGee says, we're not leaving you guys. So he worked the tool, it cracked. And I remember I could feel a little bit of movement. At that point, they're like, we got him out. We got him out. So they started pulling on me. They still couldn't get me out. There was a piece of rebar wrapped around my left ankle. At that point, Scott was trying to get uh, literally got in a position like a 69 position. You know, his his legs up here. He's down his head down by by my crotch. And he's trying to get everything out. He can't. That's when Chuck Sharika said, let me use this piece of rebar. Stuck a piece of rebar in, was able to pull my ankle free. And I remember they put me on the Stokes basket and they started bringing me up. I said, Sarge, hold on. They're going to get to you next. And I remember when they pulled me out of the hole. That's the first time I cried. That day. I didn't cry. When we got crushed, I didn't cry when the guys died. I didn't cry all evening. And I just remember uh, crying when they pulled me out of the hole because I looked up and I saw the beautiful sky, but I saw the smoke. And I said to somebody, I said, where is everything? And a firefighter said, it's all gone. And that's when I cried because I felt like we failed. You know, I saw so many people still in the mall level. And I just I felt like we failed. And at that point, uh, Sergeant Cottrell from the Port Authority Police spit on my name shield, called off my name. You know, my name is Jimeno. He called it Jimeno. He goes, we got Officer Jimeno out. And they started passing me down this long line of rescue workers. I remember all I could do was with my right arm, just start grabbing patches, Port Authority patches, NYPD patches, FDNY patches, uh, Orange County 
New York, people were coming from everywhere. And I kept saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And as they started put, pulling me down, they sent me down to the ambulance. Uh, when they got me down there, uh, they, they put me in there and uh, they were going to take me to Bellevue Hospital. And again, I grew up in Hackensack, New Jersey. Hackensack Medical Center is a great medical center in Bergen County there where I grew up literally down the block from my parents' house. And I requested, can you guys take me to Hackensack? You know, they're like, shut up. We're taking you to Bellevue. That's where you take the president of the United States in New York. If something happens, you take him to Bellevue Hospital. It's an awesome hospital. So we're going down to the hospital. I had a, a officer, Bruce Kent, with me who was taking my necklace off. That was a gift from my parents with a shield, my, my shield off, my ID. Uh, and uh, they took me to Bellevue Hospital. When they got me to Bellevue, they opened the back doors of the, of the ambulance and I remember them pulling me off. And that's the second time I cried. You know, I think it was a little bit before 1130 uh, that evening. And as they pulled me off the ambulance, I see all these doctors and nurses standing on. And I'm like, where is everybody? And they said, you're it. And I started crying again because I realized we lost a lot of people that day. And uh, they pulled me into the room. They started working on me. I mean, they were buzzing around me, all these nurses and doctors. Uh, and I passed out. You know, next thing you know, I wake up. Um, I want to say possibly the next day or the or two days later, uh, they have me literally uh, immobilized in ICU with a tube down my throat that literally was rocks were still coming out of my, uh, my throat. Uh, apparently I had inhaled so much debris that uh, the doctor had asked my wife, is he a smoker? And she said, no, because his lungs look like he's been smoking for 30 years. They literally were pulling debris and particles out of my lungs for a couple of days. I could actually hear it coming through the tube. It was, it was crazy. Um, you know, uh, they, they finally got my sergeant out the next morning. Uh, I think he came out around 7 a.m. So he was buried almost 22 hours. I was buried 13 hours. Um, you know, it, it, the ordeal was, the, the hospital stay was something, uh, you could take three hours talking about that easily. It was, it was horrific. Uh, we were fighting for our lives. Uh, we were kept secret for a long time. Once we were out of the hospital the following year, we were still in wheelchairs. Uh, Sergeant Glock and I went back to NYPD truck one to say thank you. We went there on a the day, and I remember going down there, and those guys told us, uh, do you guys know that you're the only two to survive from underneath the World Trade Center? And that was a shocker because, no, we didn't. We were so busy trying to fight for our lives, trying to recover. We didn't know all those little facts. And what was sad was I could see the pain in their eyes. They're like, we searched for survivors for about three to four weeks after, hoping we can find people in voids like we found you guys. And they're like, you two are the only two to survive from underneath the World Trade Center, which was a shocker. You know, my mom always says, I can't believe I brought you here as a child from Colombia, and you're one of two people to survive from underneath the, the worst attack in U.S. history. But with that said, you know, what I've been able to do with the experience of September 11th is not look at the bad, look at the good. And the good for me 20 years later is expressing to those of us who lived it, but more importantly to the new generation that weren't even alive, you know, uh, is to express to them there was bad on 9-11, but there was so much good. How Scott Strauss, Chuck Sharika, Patty McGee, and all the rescue workers put their lives in line to come and get us. You know, we were just trying to do our job and get people home. These guys were able to bring us home. You know, on that day, almost 3,000 people lost their lives. We're just the very fortunate ones that were able to make it back. But with being fortunate, I feel it's my obligation as a survivor to tell the tale of what happened that day as 
as a vehicle of what I saw there. Like I talk about so much love within the trade center, total strangers helping each other. You know, we're, we're here going through this past year, 2020, which was a tough year for us between COVID and all the political chaos, uh, racism. Well, guess what? On 9-11, that all went out the window. I didn't care if you were black, white, Spanish, all you cared about, there was another human being there. You know, and I tell people, I didn't get to experience September 12th because I was fighting for my life for months. But everybody tells me how the world just came together. People loved each other. Uh, what I remember was at Bellevue Hospital, the first two weeks, and if everybody knows New York City, Bellevue Hospital usually has shooting victims, stab stabbing victim, victims, mugging victims. For two weeks in ICU, not one shooting, not one stabbing came. The doctors were amazed. They're like, this really affected everybody, where people really just were being kind to each other. Two weeks, the first stabbing victim came in. But Phil, for two weeks, people were kind to each other. And, you know, I, that's what I want people to understand, that what the terrorists didn't foresee was how they were trying to destroy us. What they did was brought, bring us closer together, you know. And as a survivor, I feel it's my obligation to tell that to people. Not only to give them inspiration, but also uh, let them know that after tragedy, there is good. But sometimes getting to that good is a long, long road. So not only did I have to deal with my physical recovery, it wasn't until about a year later where I started feeling the mental problems, the post-traumatic stress disorder, the PTSD. Uh, I was so busy with physically getting better that once I got home, uh, the darkness, as I call it, started creeping in. Mine was anger. Um, I was angry. I was angry that to see my friends die. I was angry that I wasn't able to really save anybody. I was angry that I wasn't able to, as a man, do more, fight more, you know, my situation. And uh, I was starting to take it out on my family. I really was. I mean, I was angry, um, blowing up at the silliest things. Like the simple thing I would blow up is I can't find a remote control. I'd start cursing. I'd start just becoming a different person. Uh, and this continued on for a while. And I remember what really changed it for me was one night, Allison, my wife, you know, now we have our four, our little girl, Bianca, and now we have a newborn at home. Uh, by the way, you know, I was able to be there for the birth of my little girl, Olivia. Uh, she was born actually on my birthday, November 26th. And I was uh, in Kessler Rehabilitation Center. And they told me, if you work hard enough, we'll put you in a wheelchair and get you there for the birth of your child. And, and I did. I worked hard and I was able to be there and see her be born. So you would think, hey, this guy, here you are. You survived uh, September 11th. You're home. You, you, you're still in your new home. Things are good. But they weren't. They were actually going south really fast. And um, so there's a newborn in the house. And uh, at this point, I'm literally, this is more than a year later. Uh, I want to think it's almost toward the following year. Can't even remember, to be honest with you. But I was able to walk. I was walking with Canadian crutches. And with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It was an evening. I don't know what the fight was about. And it wasn't really a fight. It was just me being an asshole, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, the, the darkness, the PTSD was really controlling me. And I was mad about something. And it was early in the evening. And I was so mad. And I looked at my wife. And I've never raised my hand at a woman. And I remember getting so mad at her over something. Again, it could have been just can't find the remote control or something just pissed me off. And I picked up a shoe and I was going to throw it at her, like really beam her in the head. And I caught myself like, hey, who the fuck is who, who are you? I dropped the, the shoe because I saw Allison looking at me. I saw Bianca looking at me. And I just got in my truck and I drove up to the country. I'm a big outdoorsman. I, I love bow hunting. And I actually went to the field where the day before 9-11, I was thinking about taking a personal day instead of going to work to go bow hunt. So I drove up to this field and I just sat there and I really thought about things. And I said, you know what? This is not who you are. And at that moment, I made a decision because I started thinking to myself, you know, I think about people who are around people who drink or have drugs in their parents. A lot of times those kids end up getting into those bad habits. They're watching. They're learning. You know, they don't know anything else. And I felt that if I wasn't a good father, if I wasn't a good uh, husband, uh, my kids would see that. And somehow they would be affected. And essentially the terrorists through me would reach another generation of Americans and destroy those lives. And I said I wasn't going to do that. Uh, I had already through the police force talked to like our police psychiatrists, our therapists, and I just wasn't feeling comfortable with that. I was really just kind of denying the PTSD. I'd be like, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'm okay. Because you can't get forced to talk to people. And I did go to therapies, but I, I just wasn't getting anywhere with it. But that moment with Allison really changed me. I came home, I went upstairs and I went into Bianca's room and I said, Bianca, does, does daddy yell a lot? And she goes, yeah, daddy, you scare me sometimes. And I said, no, I got to do something. So at that point, I, I sought different uh, people to talk to. And it took me a while. It took me several people because I tell everybody, if you have a darkness, uh, you need to express it with someone. Find somebody who's qualified that can help you. And sometimes even a qualified individual, it might take three, four, five, six people to find someone you're comfortable with that you make a connection with. Just because someone's a therapist doesn't mean they're going to work out with you. And I want people to understand that because I don't want you to go to a therapist or go to a psychiatrist and you don't like that person or feel uncomfortable and give up. You keep trying. You keep pushing until you find that right person. I was lucky enough to find someone uh, that I was able to connect with, talk to, uh, went to a lot of sessions with, you know, and just kind of talking. And a lot of times I felt like I was getting nowhere. So finally, I kind of realized, you know, she had told me, uh, listen, this is something you're going to live with. You have to learn how to control it. And that's what I started doing, learning what the triggers were that were going to make, make me angry. Uh, because most of the times after I blew up, I would, the, the regular will in me would say, what the hell did you get mad about? And you realize some bullshit. It's just the post-traumatic disorder getting you going. And once you lose control, you know, you're another person. Now, there's all different types of PTSD. There's the, the anger, the depression, you know, uh, the loneliness. There's all different types. Uh, but it's something that you need to address because you know what? I, I deserve to be happy. If you're going through darkness, you deserve to be happy. You know, I always tell, uh, I was lucky enough that helped me too is talking about it. Uh, and really believe it or not, it's children. 
children are the one that helped me to start speaking and do my speaking engagements. I don't do it for a living. I get called by word of mouth. I'll go to one of speaking engagements. People say, hey, we'd like you to come here and come here. And over the years, that's the way it's been going. But how it started for me was in 2003, my next door neighbor in Clifton said, would you come to our school? The kids are scared to get on planes. And I'm like, well, what do you want me to say? He's like, I don't know. Say something. You survived the powers. You're an inspiration to many people. And I didn't look at myself as that. I just looked at myself as a lucky person to be able to be home with my, with my family. So I put on my uniform uh, and I went to the school. Uh, and I remember one of the things that I was going to talk to them about was Antonio Rodriguez's wife, Christina Rodriguez, uh, told me that they were asked to come to Portugal because they were going to honor Antonio for his courage and his sacrifice. But his, her children didn't want to get on a plane at the time. They said, we're scared because of the terrorists. And she told her children, we're going to get on that plane. We're not going to allow the terrorists to win and control our lives through fear. And I remember that was so powerful. Don't let fear control your life, you know? And I remember going there and telling these kids that we're all going to die one day. But if we live our lives through fear, fear wins. And in our case, the terrorists win. So every time you're scared to get on a plane, those terrorists that attack us, they win. And I said, kids, just get live your life. The day you're called to heaven or the day it's your expiration date's up, that's it. There's nothing we can do about that. But what we can control is how we live today. And one of the things I share with children and everybody is, you know, if you're lucky enough to live till 90, it says 365 days in a year. So if you multiply 365 times 90, you know, you'll see how many days you have left on this earth. You know, how many days you have. And I'm not going to do the math for everybody. 365 times 90. Part of that time, we're, we're infants. We're in diapers. And if we're lucky enough to get to 90, sometimes we're back in diapers. That time we have on this earth, it's not that long. You know, it really isn't when you do the math. So why not live your life in a productive, brave way by not allowing fear or any of these unfortunate darknesses from substance abuse to PTSD, uh, to child abuse, uh, to the political world we're living in control our lives. You got to fight for the good things. You know, I tell people, listen, uh, stop watching all the, the news. Turn the news off. I haven't watched news in three weeks, you know, and I, I feel good. You know, I know what's going on in the world, but I don't get focused on the negativity. All that bad noise really uh, intrudes in our life. Focus on the good things. Focus on the things that are going to make you happy, you know, that you're going to flourish. As a survivor of 9-11, I try to do that every day. And I'm not perfect. I fail many, many times at not living a fulfilling day. But I also have to know that every morning that I get up and I can breathe and I can see the sunrise, feel the rain, feel the snow, feel the heat, feel the cold is a gift. And I can't express this to everyone. Your life is a gift and you are important. So if you're out there dealing with darkness and feeling that you're not an important person, you're wrong. You're that person that if we lose you, that stone is thrown into the water and that ripple effects, you've touched many lives. You've touched many, many lives. And I want you to understand that um, you owe it to yourself to better yourself every single day. So if you're struggling with PTSD, substance abuse, or any other form of darkness, you keep fighting. That's why I did this book, you know, Sunrise Through the Darkness, you know, uh, a survivor's account of learning to live again beyond 9-11. This book goes into detail as to what happened that day. Uh, 
on the on the, uh, the 11th. But more importantly, it's my recovery from the hospital to home and dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, uh, this book's going to be out in August. Uh, we're finishing it up now. And I got to tell you, um, even I learned things from this book from my wife, you know, because your family starts to take on what's called secondary PTSD. Uh, and it doesn't have to be that you had two buildings falling. Understand post-traumatic stress disorder can happen to anybody. You could be a civilian and be in a bad car accident and you have PTSD. A lot of people want to associate PTSD with soldiers and first responders. This affects thousands, if not millions of people. And that's why I keep telling people, you're not alone. You know, um, perfect example is Chuck Sharika, who helped save my life. You know, he was a civilian. He never felt comfortable being around the firefighters and cops. And I would say, why? He's like, well, I'm not one of you guys. <laughs> Hell yes, you are. You don't have to be wearing a uniform. What you did was so heroic, you know, and I always told him, you're my brother. We love you. You don't have to be a cop or firefighter, you know, um, to, to feel part of something, you know. So for all of us who are dealing with the darkness, whether PTSD or whatever other darkness you have, we're all one. And understand you're not alone. There's thousands upon thousands of people out there today dealing with darkness. And I'm here to tell you that you're not alone. And I don't want you to seek help. And I want you to be happy because you deserve to be happy. And I tell this to everyone. Don't let negative people be in your life. Start letting negativity leave them. All right. And a lot of times people that are being negative actually are going through their own darkness. And that's the way they're expressing themselves. So I tell everybody, when you find yourself being mean to somebody, why are you being mean? Maybe you have an issue you have to deal with, you know, uh, and I'm not a. I'm not that silly to think that the whole world is, you know, uh, uh, just a beautiful place. There's a lot of bad things that happen in the world, but there's a lot of good things. And I always tell people there's more good in this world than bad. You know, that's why I always love the, the quote by Edmund Burke. Uh, you know, all, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to stand by and do nothing. Well, I'm here to tell you there are good men and women always willing to step up to help. And that means there are people out there that are willing to listen to you, help you clinically help you. So if you're going through something really, really bad in your life, seek help. And as my mom used to tell me, don't use sympathy for yourself as a crutch. So that what she meant by is, listen, as a Hispanic person growing up, my mom told me, I don't want to hear about you being a minority. You're as good as the next person where they're black, white, Asian, whatever color. It's about work ethic. It's about giving of yourself, and working hard toward a goal. So if you're out there right now, and you're in the darkness, work toward the goal. Like I, and I love this picture that I have on the cover of this book is sunrise through the darkness. Work toward the sunrise because I think about the sunrise every single day. Every day that I'm, a, I'm able to get up and see a new day is a gift. And you deserve the gift of life. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So anybody out there that's struggling, I hope that if you heard my story, what I talked about today, a little something sticks in there. Because when I go speak to children and military groups or different, I tell everybody, listen, I'm going to talk right now. 
It's going to go through one ear and out the other. I hope something sticks between your ears. That's going to help you. And I'll be honest with you. I've been blessed to have feedback over the years. And uh, I've been trying to put this book together for about eight years now. And I ran into the problem that the publishers were like, hey, man, Will, we love your story. But they made a movie about you. And I said, well, yeah, but it's not about the, the movie. It's the, the really hard road to recovery that I really want to focus on. And what kept me really motivated was all the people that would come up to me after I do speaking engagements. And I feel like almost a priest. They would share such heart-wrenching stories. And they would tell me, listening to you gave me hope. You know, I always talk about having faith, hope, and love. Those three things. Having hope. Never give up hope. Having faith. And I don't preach religion. Uh, if you don't have a religious face, uh, faith, have faith in yourself and have love. Love for yourself and those around you. Those three things will keep you going. And people would come up to me and tell me their stories and tell me, hey, you know, I really needed to hear what you said today. Uh, and I'm going to share with you two instances that really motivated me to do this book. Uh, one happened in 2010. Uh, I was asked every year to come down to Fairleigh Dickinson University to speak um, uh, to this group. Of, it's called Latino Promise and great group of people every year. Uh, and we were at war still. Uh, and I remember I always would ask, who's are the veterans in, in the room? And, you know, they'd raise their hand. And I always ask, you know, you know, who was in theater? And what I'm trying to convey is, you know, who saw something nasty without actually asking them or intruding on them, especially in public? Now you get a couple nods. So, you know, the combat vets, the people have seen some bad things. And I remember, uh, you know, afterwards I would talk to people and, and a couple guys would stick in my mind. I go back the following year. And after I do my presentation, do the Q&A, uh, this one gentleman stands in the back and he says, hey, Will, I don't know if you remember me. I was here last year. And I said, yeah. I said, Marine, like, Fallujah, right? He's like, yeah. And he goes, I'm, 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 I came back here to share with the class that I want you to, to listen to Will, take something away with it. He goes, several months after I heard Will speak, he goes, you know, I had a gun in my mouth and he's going to kill myself. And he had seen some really bad stuff. And that's really tough for someone to get up there and share that. And I remember he flattened me. I was in tears. Everybody was crying. And he just said, I went and got help. And I'm happy today. And that really like just, wow, you know, really kind of gave me the thrust to do this book. And then a couple of years ago, when I'm still having a hard time putting this book together, uh, I, I went and spoke to a large uh, military group. And I remember uh, a female come up to me. She was an African-American. She walked up to me. Uh, and there was a long line of people waiting. And they would give us space to talk. And she said to me, thank you for coming to speak. And I was asked there by their military group to come out there. And she said, you know, I needed to hear this. I just lost my job. Uh, and I forget which way it was, but. You know, I have a son, I believe uh, he told me he tried to commit suicide recently and his, his daughter and her daughter was uh, a drug addict. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, you imagine being a parent. You just lost your job. You have one child, child trying to commit suicide and the other one's dealing with substance abuse. You know, the world's coming on. So my point is we all have our own world trade centers, but we have to push forward and survive them. And you can because. Uh, if you see my left leg, it's it's torn up. It looks like a great white shark ripped it apart, you know, from the crush injuries. Um, and I have to learn how to live again physically, but more importantly, mentally. And I, again, I, I cannot stress to everyone out there that I want you to understand that you deserve to be happy. 
I hope that when uh, my book Sunrise Through the Darkness comes out this August, you pick it up, you read it, you learn some good lessons from it. Uh, I still learn good lessons from it. You know, I mean, like I said, uh, listening to the chapter from my wife was was big for me because I never really took the time to talk to her about it. And, you know, this book is for those who are dealing with darkness and the the caregivers, the caregivers, the people that are not talked about, the people who are dealing with their loved ones who have a darkness, whatever that means, again, from PTSD to substance abuse to have been raped, you know, those caregivers are actually going through a lot too. And it's important that we share that, especially uh, 20 years later, because the lessons we learn from 9-11 are important. And there's so many lessons to be learned. Uh, not only that, hey, there were bad people that day, there were a lot of good people and there's a way to recover from tragedy. And I always tell people, if we don't find light in the tragedy, then it's just that a tragedy. And we cannot allow that to happen. You know, uh, we saw that in 2020, COVID was really the World Trade Center that came down on the world. Uh, and we've taken a lot of loss. We've taken a lot of, of pain. But I'm proud to say, as we're coming out of this, we also see how resilient we are as human beings, how we adapt, how we support each other. Uh, you know, and it's important to remember that because I want September 11th to be looked at as a day that darkness came into our world as Americans and really as humanity, but a day that we came together and we were able to fight that darkness and come out of it in a good way. And some of those people that show me that are people are the spouses of people who were lost, children who lost their parents, who talk about their parents as if they're alive today and share good lessons of what they remember from their parents. And even if they didn't know their parents, they learned so much about their parents that they expressed how good of a person my mom or dad was, you know? And I guarantee you there's gonna be tragedies in the future. So I hope that, you know, my book Sunrise to the Darkness somehow, some way prepares people for what could happen in their lives. And I hope nothing ever bad happens in everybody's lives, but we all know that's not the case. So could there be a worse attack than September 11th down the road one day? Absolutely, because evil does exist, but we always going to have good there to counter that, just like on September 11th. I only have two questions for you, because what an incredible story. First, besides the physical residual from the crushing, do you have any other 9-11 illnesses, issues? So I'm blessed right now that I'm not. Uh, my sergeant has been going through things. And, and I, I'm amazed at it because we literally became part of the building. We were actually breathing. When they were rescuing me, Scott Strauss, Chuck Tarika, Patty McGee were coughing. They could not. They were like fighting to, to take in air. I was breathing it naturally. Somehow, some way, our bodies naturally were taking it in. I wasn't coughing. Uh, in the beginning, I was. But... Somehow our bodies adapted. Uh, I think about that every single day. I kind of hate to say it. I'm kind of waiting for that moment that some weird cancer or something happens to me. I try to keep healthy. Uh, I do a lot of outdoor activities. Uh, that's why I always tell people in the, you know October, November in the evenings when I'm putting out the garbage, I take a deep breath of that cold air into my lungs and I'm blessed. Uh, we have so many first responders and civilians that came down to help. Uh, who've lost their lives. That Actually, the person I was talking to, uh, Deborah, she lost her life several years ago because she used to go down at midnight to talk to the police officers and she was exposed to 
um, elements and she actually died from, I think it was two rare forms of cancer. So the person who helped me on my road to recovery mentally lost her life uh, by trying to help people down there and she got ill from it. So uh, thankfully I have not uh, encountered anything. Uh, I hope not to, uh, but you know, I'm also blessed that if I do, I look at it as I've had this many years that's more years than so many people have. But uh, so far, knock on wood, I'm, I'm good. Well, one other question. Why do you think you were spared? <laughs> I always, people ask me all the time. And I said, look, the only person who's going to ask me that, uh, be able to answer that is God. All I can do is, uh, I always say, when I meet God, I, I want to look him in the eye and say, I hope I did good with my second lease. You know? And again, I owe that to children. Uh, uh, and, and the gentleman who asked me to come speak to children, I never intended to speak. Uh, I, I, I always say I'm a ham anyway, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm active. I'm, you know, I, I love people. I love being around people. But uh, the good thing that I think God gave me a gift for was the gift of gab. And I've never, ever written down anything. Oh, excuse me. I lost my earpiece here. I've never, ever written down anything at a speech. It comes from my heart. I remember speaking to a board of uh, education and after speaking like I just did for an hour, uh, professor of English came up and said, excuse me, sir, I never saw you look down at your notes. And I said, I don't have notes. It comes from my heart. And I think that's why people connect with me because they know what I, what, I, what I mean comes from my heart. When I tell you that I love you, even though I don't know you and I want you to have a fulfilling life, I mean it because I was in the depths of hell. I was at the doorstep of death and I know how precious life is. And I want you to have a precious life. I might not know you, but I want you to be happy. And I want you to be kind and always be kind to others because you never know your kindness can change somebody who's in a dark place and give them an hour, a day, a month to work on it, to get better. You know, so remember, always, always go toward that sunrise when you're in darkness. You know, I, and I appreciate you having me on here. I, I just want to tell everybody the way we remember everybody from September 11th is by being kind every single day. If you're being kind. That's what everybody who lost their lives, I know that's how I feel, was just make the world a kinder place. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another chapter of 9-11 Stories, a podcast presented by Barrish and McGarry, lawyers for the 9-11 community and New York's classic rock, Q104.3. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.